All right, good evening, everybody. Welcome back. I'm glad to see after um, a couple weeks on the cosmological argument, everybody's still with us. Or maybe, maybe not everybody. I guess if, you, if you're not here, you're not still with us, and I wouldn't be able to say that. So, um, But those of you who are still here, thank you for, for sticking with us. Um, we, did, we have gone through some pretty um, heavy stuff, some pretty cognitive things uh, to try to make the case for the existence of God. We're not done yet, but this, one, this week's going to take a little bit slower pace. It's going to come down just a little bit lower, and uh, we're going to probably spend a couple weeks on this next argument, um, idea for the existence of God, and then we will move into more of what we would call um, an evidential uh, argument for the, for the existence of God. We may throw one more heady thing at you, that we, you know, just for fun, the, the ontological argument, which we're not going to spend too much time on, because, well, it hurts all of our heads when we try to think about it. There's, there, it's just... It's out there. I mean, it's it's way out there. So we won't spend much time on it because I highly doubt that as you know, you're sitting around the kitchen table with your your friends who aren't quite sure if they believe in God that you're going to whip this one out of your back pocket and and just start throwing around. But we're going to take some time um, next several weeks to just talk about what we're going to be going, where we're going to be going from here. Right now, we've been building the case from someone who would say, look, I don't believe that there is a God, or I'm not sure there is a God. And we'd be giving some evidences or some arguments or some ideas that would help show that the way this world works and the way that everything around us is would assume or would, or would seem the best explanation for why things are the way they are would be to believe in a personal God. That's all we've known so far. That's, that's the only place that these arguments are going to take us right now is to the, to the idea that, yes, there exists a God out there somewhere. We don't know much more about him other than it is a God out there. Evidential apologetics will start taking us a little bit closer to the God of the Christian Bible. Um, and we will start to have some evidences from there. And then we'll, move, we'll, we'll explain where we're going to go from there. But that will be some more things that I think people will be a little bit more familiar with. Um, but tonight we're going to focus on the argument from morality. Okay, now this is it's going to be a, a little bit a little bit slower pace. We might spend the next two weeks on it. Uh, we'll see how how long tonight goes. Maybe with three weeks, I don't know. But I think you guys you guys will be able to interact a little bit more. I have several videos tonight, some some short video clips for you guys tonight to see what some of those who those people who say we don't believe. In God, what some atheists, some of the the well-known atheists, uh, I believe I have some from Christopher Hitchens, um, Charles Dawkins, um, Peter Singer. Uh, these are these are well-known, uh, very intelligent um, professors. Many times, uh, Dawkins and Singer, especially at uh, Singer's at, at Princeton. Um, men who say they don't believe in God, they have good reasons why not to. And they're, they're gonna, we're going to listen to them, and I'm going to have you guys hear what they're saying, what people out in the world are hearing, what you guys may be hearing about um, arguments against the existence of God. And tonight we're going to talk specifically about the argument uh, from morality. Um, now I want to, uh, to, to read a quote here, and, and P.T. warned me this might be a dangerous quote to read, but I think I'll read it anyway, um, from C.S. Lewis. And this kind of transitions us from where we've been um, and remember, C.S. Lewis at one point didn't necessarily believe in God. And so he had to make that shift himself to believe in a God and then make the shift into believing uh, the God of the Bible. But this is what C.S. Lewis has to say. He says, we have two bits of evidence about the somebody, meaning the somebody behind the moral law that we're going to talk about tonight. 
One is the universe he has made. And that's what we've been spending the past several weeks on, isn't it? We've been talking about the cosmological argument, going from, from the big cosmos, the universe, how everything began. Uh, then we spent um, a, a week about talking about the design within this huge universe, and then we spent a week talking about the, the, the design uh, all around us and on, on a micro level rather than a macro level. He says, uh, we have two bits about, of evidence about this somebody. One is the universe he has made. If we used that as our only clue, then I think we should have to conclude that he was a great artist. For the universe is a very beautiful place, but also that he is quite merciless and no friend to man. For the universe is a very dangerous and terrifying place. The other bit of evidence is that the moral law which he has put into our minds, and this is a better bit of evidence than the other, because it is inside information. You find out more about God from the moral law than from the universe in general, just as you find out more about a man by listening to his conversation than by looking at a house he built. What is C.S. Lewis saying there? And Pastor Tim alluded to this a little bit last week. What is C.S. Lewis saying there? He's saying, look, we can know two bits of information about this somebody, this God. Number one, we can see things all around us. We can see creation. We can see the things that he's made. But if that's all we had, it would be very impersonal, wouldn't it? I mean, we could say that it's beautiful. We could say that it's full of design. But we'd say it also seems in some ways harsh and cruel. In some ways, they're, they're, it's hard to understand these natural disasters. It's hard to understand these things. So we, those, that's about all we could get. But there's something more. And, he, and C.S. Lewis contends it's something even better. And that's the moral law within. There's something within man that speaks of a moral law, that speaks to morality, that says there is a moral code within this universe that will we'll make the argument that that, only seems, that that can only come from a God. But he says that's an even better one. Why? Because it's not just out there. It's right in here. Here. And it speaks to something deep within. And for him, that is a better argument for the existence of, of this somebody, of this God. And, and, as, and I would say that the moral argument, I love the moral argument, by the way. I think it's, 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 it's my favorite argument. I had to arm wrestle PT for it. And I, I, well, we didn't really arm wrestle because I don't know who would win that. But we, anyway, um, flip the coin. We did something. Anyway, he, he, succeed, he succeeded and said, you can have it. So I said, that's, that's wonderful. So I, I, or I took it, one or the other, before he had a chance. But either way, I got the moral argument. And I really love the moral argument because I think it is very effective. I think when you're speaking with somebody, the moral argument is very effective for several different reasons. Number one, it's simple. Okay, for the past several weeks, we've been talking about the cosmological argument. I mean, that word, it's the, it's the, cos, it's the, it's the Cosby, it's the Cosmo, it's a something argument. I can't remember what it is. Cosmological argument, even the term is big, right? The teleological argument, that's from the Latin, the Greek, the whatever. It's from something, right? It, there, those are big things we have to try to remember. And I knew there was something about cosmological constant and the law of relative. Oh, I, I don't remember. But something, a bang, something like that happened. And, and you know, that, that's for God. You know, it, it, it's, it's kind of confusing. You'd have to have someone that would have some knowledge. But the moral argument doesn't, ha- you don't have to have any advanced knowledge of anything. Because as C.S. Lewis said, it's, it's within us. And, and we'll, we'll talk more about that. But not more than that, it's, it's um, I think, one of the most effective because it's personal. When you sit down around the dinner table or you sit down across, uh, have coffee with someone who says, you know what, I'm just not sure about this whole God thing. I just, you know, it's just, I, I can't imagine how there's a God. I can't believe there's a God out there. What's, just, just give me an idea, what's, what's one of the objections that usually you hear? And we'll, and we'll deal with objections later, by the way. We're not going to get into objections right now. Objections come later. Right now we're going to build a case positively for God and then for the Christian God of the Bible. And then we're going to take a step back and we're going to say, okay, here are some objections that get foisted upon Christianity. How do we as Christians rationally, is there a rational answer for them? How do we deal with them? Okay, but what, what are some ideas? If you sit down with someone and, and they're saying, you know, yeah, I'm just not sure about God. 
God. You know, I don't think, I don't really believe in a God or I'm not sure there's a God. And you ask, why not? What's usually an answer? There's usually one answer that just pops out all the time. Anybody have one? Anybody sit down with an atheist or anything? Yes. If there's a loving God, how can he let bad things happen? How many of you have heard that before? Come on. Okay, even if you haven't sat down with an atheist friend, you've heard it somewhere. How can, and what is that speaking to? That's not spe- I usually don't sit down with someone and say, man, I'm just not sure about this whole God thing because the design and nature just isn't exactly what I'd expect it to be. Or, you know, I'm not sure about God because, you know, the ontological argument doesn't fully satisfy my, my rational thinking. No, they, say, they feel something, don't they? They say, I see what's around me. There's something uh, wrong. There's something, there's, there's something not right with the world, and I can't, uh, so I can't fix it with God. And we'll talk about later how to do that specifically. Pastor Tim talked about it in Job a lot. But I want to step back and say, this, we're not, what we're talking about tonight is not going to say, well, let's try to fix that problem. We're going to say, why is that even a problem? Okay, that's the deeper question to all of it. It's not a fact that, that how do we fix the problem? That will come later. But the bigger question we want to deal with right now is, why do you even see that as a problem? Okay? It's very personal. Everybody feels that pain sometime. Everybody feels that existential pain. Everybody sees um, something that's unjust in the world, that's not right in the world, and, and we, we have to wrestle with that. Well, we're going to talk a little bit about how that can speak to the existence of God. I, mean, I think it screams the existence of God. But people oftentimes miss it or just wash it under, and, and we'll talk about that. But it's also, I think, one of the most effective because it's, it's right where we live, right? Everyone interacts with ethical issues. There's, it comes up for everybody. You, you deal with it every day. We deal with ethical issues, with uh, issues of morality, with justness, with fairness, with love, with hate, with greed. All of that. Is we deal with it every day. Not every day am I sitting down and finding out how the Big Bang or, you know, how um, design and nature specifically interacts with my life on a daily basis. It does in ways that I don't think about. But I often have to think about something about morality somewhere along the line of my day. So it exists right where we live. And it's, it's universal. I don't care if you go to Timbuktu. They deal with moral issues. I don't care if you go to France. They may deal with them a little loose, more loosely, but they deal with them. I'm just kidding. Um, but, but either way, everybody deals with moral issues, right? Uh, is, is anybody French in here? I'm sorry. I, was, I, was, I, didn't, I didn't mean anything by yeah. <laughs> My wife's French-Canadian to a point, so I guess, I don't know. I guess, I guess if you can associate yourself with something and you make fun of it, it makes it somehow better. I don't know if you ever noticed that. It makes you, it, at least it makes it look like it's better. You know, like I can, I can make fun of a guy, but if I make fun of a woman, it, it doesn't look so good. I better go out the back door. Um, but anyway, where was I? Oh, yeah, universal. Everybody deals with these issues of morality, right? It's, it's, it's all around us. So this is a wonderful argument. And when I say, I hate using the word argument. I wish there was another way to say it. Um, an idea for the existence of God. I don't want to say argument because we're not sitting down and arguing, especially with this one, especially with this one. We're not going to sit down and on a cognitive level sit down and say, yes, but where do your morals come from? How do you know that? This is something that's very empathetic. This is something where you're sitting down with someone and they're feeling 
existential pain. They're feeling something's been done to them that's wrong. That that you can probe a little deeper. Now, maybe not necessarily. You want to use this all the time because it, it does probe. It bypasses the fact that someone is feeling something and asks why they're feeling it. So pastorally, I would say, you know, as a pastor, you don't want to just bypass that. You know, it's the same as someone who's hurting, saying, well, you know, God's a good God, and you know, just you know, have to deal with that. And remember, He has everything. You don't do that with someone that's hurting, right? You you feel pain with them, but it speaks to something deeper, and that's what we want to get to. That's what we want to talk about. So everybody feels it, so it's, you can talk about it with everybody. But before we start, before we really get into it, I want, I want a little hand, show of hand thing. Okay, you ready? All right. Now we're, we're going we're gonna to show that everybody deals with these moral issues. Okay. I'm going to throw out some issues that have happened, some events, things like that. And I want to know, do you feel the right or do you feel the wrong? Okay. Simple, right, wrong. Okay. Um, some of these may sound seem extremely easy, but we'll come back to them later and show, you know, why this is an issue for some people. Okay, number one, the Holocaust. Okay, how many people feel that the Holocaust was right? Praise God, I see no hands. <laughs> we may have to have a longer. I mean, the next week's sermon <laughs> might be on something like that. Um, but but okay, how many feel it was wrong then? Okay, and this is the way I test to make sure everybody is participating because there were no hands first, and I better see all hands. Okay, so yes, okay, everybody feels that. Okay, now let me let me take it a step deeper. How many people feel it was wrong for those uh, in America? For us in America, we feel that it was wrong. Okay, how many in America? If you were living, okay, let me let me let me say it again. If you were living in 1940s in America during the time of the Holocaust, would you have felt that that was wrong? Okay. How many? Okay. Now, what about in Germany? Would you, in the 1940s, would it have still been wrong? I'm not going to, let me change that. I'm not going to ask, would you have felt that it was wrong? That's a little more difficult because you don't know. But I'm asking, would it have still been wrong if you were living in Germany in the 1940s during the Holocaust? Would it have still been wrong? Raise your hand if you believe it's, it would be still be wrong. Okay. How many would still think, how many think would be right at that point? You think it would be right for, at, at that time? Okay. Um, let's move on. Okay, um, now the concept of rape. How many of you would think rape is right? Okay, how many? And uh, I, there were no hands for those on the podcast, and so we can just simply move on. That there, everybody would answer in the negative on that. That they would, everybody would believe that it would be wrong. Um, how about cannibalism? How many would say cannibalism is right? How many would say cannibalism is right if you're not living in America but you're living on an island somewhere? That what, what kind of meat? What's that? What kind of... <laughs> Just for the record, Ken is not allowed on the hospitality committee for Wednesday night dinners. <clears throat> now let me ask you another question. Okay, here, here's one a little bit. You know, okay, rape, cannibalism. It's a little bit, um, little seems a little bit easier. Although I will, I will make, I will, I will say. Um, I, I did watch a uh, podcast. I didn't get to finish watching it, so I can't be completely fair in my critique of it. Um, but the name of it was uh, something to the, the effect of in the defense of murder and cannibalism. And this was not just something I found in the, in the recesses of the World Wide Web. This was on iTunes U, um, being taught to thousands upon thousands, I think 14,000 um, over the, the span of the, cor- uh, the lifetime of this course, at one time, it's usually several thousands, or a couple, or at least a thousand students or more, at Harvard University. Okay, and uh, the ethicist—I I, I apologize, I don't remember his name—would um, stand up there and would posit these uh, thought experiments to try to get people to see: Is there an instance in which murder would be right? 
Is there an instance in which cannibalism would be right? And like I said, I didn't finish it. Maybe we'll get to talk about that a little bit more, but that goes a little bit away. I watched some of it. It doesn't quite touch what we're talking about tonight, but it was interesting nonetheless that here we are, even in America, and uh, I guess if he were sitting in the room, he would have to raise his hand. And it was interesting. They, had, they panned the audience, and there were times when, should this murder be done? And there were hands that went up. I was, I was surprised. And, but that's beside the point. The idea is, you know, thankfully here we seem to have a consensus, but that's not the case all around the world or all around uh, even America, even in the Ivy League schools. Um, uh, slavery. How many of you would say slavery is wrong? Okay, almost everybody. How many of you would say slavery, if you were living in the, the, uh, you know, the turn of the century, in, uh, um, or I'm sorry, if you were living, you know, back in, the, in, in America, 1800s, would you, would you still say that slavery was wrong? Okay, and, and so there's, a, there's something about that, isn't there? Okay, what about women's rights? If you're living in America, do you say women ha- should have rights? Women should not be treated as lesser individuals and be subjugated to men in every aspect? I mean, how many would you say would that be right to say, yes, women have rights? Okay, now what about if you were living in a Middle Eastern country? Would you also say that, yes, still, women have rights? How many of you would say that? Okay, um, still a, a, a good majority. But now my question, I want to, the reason I'm doing this is I want to get across, why do you say that? Why? Someone give me an answer. Why do you say that, that rape is wrong, that cannibalism is wrong? Why do you say the Holocaust was wrong? And why do you say it was wrong, you know, even if you were in America or if you were in Germany? Why do you say that? Okay, so you say that it's because of the culture, the, the biblical culture that we've had that, that kind of speaks to that, that says that, that, it, that it is wrong. Okay, someone else? Yes. Okay, so you'd say it's something that God has put into us, that morality. Okay, yeah. Okay, you'd say we'd go to the Word to find out. Yes, okay. Okay, so regardless of where we live or at what time, God has instilled with us uh, right or wrong um, within us. Um, that's, that's what we're going to get at tonight. Okay, we're not going to, like I said earlier, we're not going to deal with issues of, you know, is this just, is this not just? How do we know what's just? How do we not know it's just? The question is, if, why is something unjust or why is something just? We're going deeper. We're going to the level of what they call meta-ethics. We're going deep, okay? Um, people raising your hand, why, why would you say that's wrong? And that's the question. Just remember, if you remember any question about this argument, anything about this argument, the, the key word, the key question is why? You know, someone says, well, this is totally wrong. You're sitting down with, with someone who says, you know, I don't believe in God whatsoever. I don't believe in this. I don't, you know, I, I, but, but I, I can't imagine that this is, you know, why would God allow this? Well, how can a loving God, why is that wrong? Well, just because, no, no, let me ask again, why is that? And keep probing with that why question. There, there's something that, there has to be an answer to that. And we're going to talk a little bit about that um, tonight. Now, what's, what's interesting is the, the moral argument seems, well, I would say that it seems to be the most effective argument um, for the, uh, speaking to the existence of God. Um, and mo- therefore, then, the most uh, effective argument against atheism. But what's often happened is often when the topic for, uh, for atheism, when the topic of morality comes up, they use that as a case against Christianity or against the existence of God in general. Well, I would say that this is the most powerful argument um, an effective argument for the existence of God. Atheists actually use it and say that it's the most effective argument against the existence of God. 
Um, and let me give you a, uh, I'm going to give you a quote, and then we're going we're gonna to see a video from somebody who would certainly say that uh, Christianity is immoral. Um, as a matter of fact, um, the name of his book is God is Not Great. Okay, and that's, that has, uh, it's Christopher Hitchens, God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. And, I mean, even the, even the term there has uh, some value judgment in it right there. Uh, but this is what he says. This is what uh, Christopher Hitchens says. He says, there are indeed several ways in which religion is not just amoral, but positively immoral. And these faults and crimes are not to be found in the behavior of its adherents, which sometimes can be exemplary, but in its original precepts. He says the very foundation of them is immoral. These include presenting a false picture of the world to the innocent and to the credulous, the doctrine of blood sacrifice, the doctrine of atonement, the doctrine of eternal reward and or punishment, the imposition of impossible tasks and rules. Okay, now we're going to see a video of Christopher Hitchens right now, and, and again, we're going to see him talking about this. We're not going to deal, we're, again, we're not dealing with the fact that, we're not going to deal with the fact that, um, of how do we talk about what he's saying about Christianity. I just want you to see his moral judgments against Christianity. Okay, so if we could have uh, the first uh, Hitchens video. And it's a, it's a, a couple-minute video, so just hang with it, and I want you to be able to at least see somebody who would speak against uh, the morality of, of the Christian faith to believe that your sins, yours and mine, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, can be forgiven by the punishment of another person. Is it ethical to believe that? I would submit that the doctrine of vicarious redemption by human sacrifice is utterly immoral. I might, if I wished, if I knew any of you, you were my friends, or even if I didn't know you, but I just loved the idea of you. Compulsory love is another sickly element of Christianity, by the way. But suppose, I could say, look, you're in debt. I've just made a lot of money out of a God-bashing book. I'll pay your debts for you. Maybe you'll pay me back someday, but for now I can get you out of trouble. But I can't take away your responsibilities. I can't forgive what you did. I can't say you didn't do it. I can't make you washed clean. The name for that in primitive Middle Eastern society was, was scapegoating. You pile the sins of the tribe on a goat, you drive that goat into the desert to die of thirst and hunger, and you think you've taken away the sins of the tribe. A positively immoral doctrine that abolishes the concept of personal responsibility on which all ethics and all morality must depend. It has a further implication. I'm told that I have to have a share in this human sacrifice, even though it took place long before I was born. I had no say in it happening, I wasn't consulted about it. Had I been present, I would have been bound to do my best to stop the public torture and execution of an eccentric preacher. I would do the same even now. No, no, I'm implicated in it. I myself drove in the nails. I was present at Calvary. It confirms the original filthy sin in which I was conceived and born the sin of Adam and Genesis. Again, this may sound a mad belief, but it is the Christian belief. The Bishop of Carlisle recently, the tipped, I'm told, to be the next Archbishop of Canterbury, said that the floods in northern Yorkshire that devastated a large part of England in the summer um, and killed and dis dispossessed a large number of people were punishment for homosexuality. Now, to connect meteorology to morality it seems to me, I have to say, flat out idiotic whichever way you do it. If there was a connection between meteorology and morality, which religion has very often argued that there is, I don't see why the floods hit northern Yorkshire. I can think of some parts of London where they would have done a lot more good 
The Archbishop of Canterbury, Geoffrey Fisher, who said the following, that a nuclear war, thermonuclear war, would only hasten our transition into a more blessed state into which we were bound to eventuate anyway. If I had told you that remark and asked you to guess, you would have said Mahmoud Ahmadinejad said it, or some other fanatical verminous mullah. No, the Archbishop of Canterbury said it, and why shouldn't he? Because another immoral and sinister thing about religion is that lurking under it at all times, in every one of its versions, is a desire for this life to come to an end. What is it like? I've never tried it. I've never been a cleric. What is it like to lie to children for a living and tell them that they have an authority that they must love, compulsory love, what a grotesque idea, and be terrified of at the same time? What's that like, I want to know? Wow. A pleasant fellow. And again, we're not going to have time to even touch half of the illogical statements, the it, taken out of context, the, the problems with what he had, what Christopher Trehitchens had to say. But what I wanted you to see is through all of the arguments, whether it was about nuclear holocaust or whether it was about um, lying to children, all of that was couched. Every single one of the, the, the pasted-together segments was couched in moral language, wasn't it? It is immoral to do this. It is positively immoral to do that. It is, it is disgusting. It's, how can you believe that this is ethically right to do? And what did I say was the one question that needs to be asked? What makes it or why? Why, Christopher Hitchens, is it immoral? And, we're gonna, and someone will actually ask him this question later, and we'll, and we'll, and we'll, we'll hear his response to it. But um, th- this is what I wanted to show you, is that um, while we're going to stand on this side and say this is a, a, a screaming argument for the existence of God, they're standing there to saying, no, the morality of God, the mora- immorality of religion and immorality of God is screaming against Christianity. But what's deeper than, the, than what he's showing you, the surface problems, is the fact of where, where are you getting your morality from? On what are you basing morality if you're not basing it in God? And that leads us to what the moral argument actually says. Okay, now propositionally, in other words, laid out like a philosophical argument, this is what the, the moral argument says. It's very, it's very simple and it's very easy. Some of you guys could even memorize or, or just have, remember. And it says this. It says, if God does not exist, if there were no God, then objective moral values and duties do not exist. Okay? If God does not exist, then objective moral values and duties do not exist. If there is no God, there is no objective morality. Okay? Objective moral values and duties do exist, therefore God exists. Did you follow that logic? Makes sense? Okay, now again, with a syllogism, with a syllogism or, or with a proposition such as, it is, this is logically valid. Yes, it, it makes sense that if God does not exist, then objective moral values and duties do not exist. Objective moral values and duties do exist, therefore God exists. Now, that's, that speaks, yes, it's logically valid. It doesn't speak to the truth of the claim, though. We have to take a look at each one to say, is that true? Do, is it true that if God does not exist, then objective moral values and duties do not exist? And we're going to take a look at those two. Um, therefore, God exists doesn't need a whole lot of time. It's kind of the conclusion. It's pretty simple. It follows right after the other two. But we're going to take a look at the other two and see what, see what, that ha- what we have to talk about that. But what it basically says is this. No God, no objective morality. Okay, if there is no God, we have no objective morality. First thing we have to talk about, what do I mean by objective morality? Okay, 
Now, if you guys remember all the way back to my talk on um, my, uh, when I did about the absolute truth, it kind of speaks to that. And if you guys were here and you remember some of that, uh, we're not going to take time to rehash a whole lot of that. <coughs> Excuse me. But um, it, it has to do with that. Objective versus subjective. Okay? And objective literally means states that something is independent of what people think or perceive. Okay? The, the st- a statement or, or whatever it is, whatever is objective, exists apart from what someone thinks or believes. Subjective would be the exact opposite, right? Subjective would say, it, every, whatever it is, whatever you would say this thing is, whether it's morality, truth, whatever, it's based upon what I think and believe. Obje- objective says it has nothing to do with what I think or believe. It's irrespective of that. Wayne Craig says, to say that there are objective moral values is to say that something is good and evil independently of whether any human being believes it to be so. Whether I believe something is, is evil or not doesn't make it evil or not. It's evil or it's good apart from whether I think it's evil or good. Does that make sense? That's what we're talking about when, we're, when we speak of objective morality. Okay, objective morality, I mean, you've heard of sub, the subjective side of things. Well, what's true for me or what's true for you isn't necessarily true for me, right? I create truth. You, you have your truth, I have my truth. That's subjective. It's, it's based on me. Objective says, you know, what's true for me is, well, it's true because it's true. It's not true because I make it true. It's true because it's true. I don't make it true. I discover it to be true. I don't make something moral. I discover that it's moral. Okay? Does that make sense? It kind of goes about if a tree falls in the forest and nobody's there to hear it, does it make a sound? All right, we, all right, we did the other ones. Okay, let's do this one too. Okay, how many of you say it makes a sound? Raise your hand. Wow, a grand majority. How many of you would say that if a tree falls in a forest and nobody is there to hear it, it does not make a sound? Of course, we have contrarians in the younger crew over there. You guys must be postmoderns, you know. I, I think that, what's that? It does. Because you know what? I've often been asked this. I said, someone asked me, if a tree falls in a forest and no one's there to... And I would answer in the affirmative, by the way, of that question I asked. You know, yes, I believe it does make a sound. And then someone asked me the question, well, if a tree falls in a forest and uh, and, and no one's there to hear, does it make a noise? Well, no, absolutely not. And they're like, but you just said it would make... Well, no, it makes a sound. Well, then it makes... No, it doesn't make a noise. I'm like, what do you mean? Well, a noise I I I would define as an irritable sound. And so, no, if no one's there to, to hear it, then it can't make an irritable sound. It just makes a sound. You know, I, I, you can't hear it to, do, to just say whether or not it's, it's irritable. But, yes, it makes a sound. There are sound waves being produced from that. It is an objective reality that when a tree falls in a forest, it disturbs the air molecules and makes sound waves, whether all my ears are there to hear it or not. Okay? Now, relativism would say that's not true. Your ears are not there to produce this, to, to claim it as a sound. Well, no, it doesn't make any it, It's silly. It's silly to think that way, right? It's silly to think that, that something doesn't exist simply because I don't believe it exists. You know, if, if that were the case, you know, I believe that I have a huge bank account and a Corvette waiting for me out in the parking lot, you know, and that, that would, but it, it just it doesn't work for me. So that's my real life example of how I believe objectivity is true. Um, but now let's, now let's take it from being a, 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 a um, little thought experiment that we've all played as kids, you know, if a tree falls in a forest. Now let's switch it over to the moral realm. Okay, remember I asked you, how many of you thought the Holocaust was wrong even if you were in America during the 1940s? And, you, and everybody raised their hand, right? How many of you felt that the Holocaust was wrong even if you were in the 1940s you lived in Germany? And just about everybody for the same, same amount raised their hand again. Well, why is that? 
Well, we believe that it's an objective morality. It is true whether you live in, in Germany during the 1940s or whether you live in America in the 1940s or whether you live in America in 2010. It's true that the Holocaust, the killing of millions of Jews, of innocent Jews, simply because of their race, of their ethnicity, is wrong. That's flat out wrong. Why is that wrong? That, that's what we're going to get to. Why is that wrong? So we're saying if God does not exist, then that claim to say, well, the Holocaust is wrong, was wrong, and will always be wrong, whether I like it or not, is, is, cannot be said. If there is no God, we can't say that. That's what this argument is saying. Okay, um, because the problem is, if we were to say that that um, that no, the Holocaust—I mean, I'm sorry—no, the Holocaust would not be wrong, depending on where you lived and when you lived and things. Like, then that's to say, well, we shouldn't have entered the war, should we? America said, "I realize that's a different country. I realize it started before we were actually wanting to enter this war, but it's still wrong." Those are different people. They're a, a different nation under a different leader, but it's still wrong. And therefore, we, it is incumbent upon us to help and to do something about it. America has always been about that, and many other countries as well. Um, how, however you feel about any war, the idea is that, that there is an objective right or wrong to which we all speak. Right? And we all appeal to that. That's an everyday thing, too. I mean, how many of you um, would seriously think that if someone were to walk up to you and, you know, just smack you across the face, and you say, well, you know, uh, morality and, and values are all subjective, so as long as you feel that's right, then that's okay. Now, if you tell me you feel that that's wrong, then I would then be okay to, to say that's not right and, 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 and hit you back. But as long as you feel it's okay, who am I to say that you can't smack me in the face, right? We, we don't, how many have done that before? Nobody, right? Um, I, my father-in-law tells a story that he was arguing with a, with a gentleman about this, and I think I, I, think I even said this to you with, with the... Um, Absolute truth, talking about absolute truth and, and things like that. that my, my father-in-law worked on a construction site and worked with a gentleman who claimed that there was no absolute truth um, or, and there was no absolute morality. There's no way to know really truly what's right and wrong. There's no objective morality. And we'll get to that. That's also the second premise. But just, just for right now, he said, um, you know, there's no objective morality. There's, there's no way to know really what's right and wrong. And they've just been working. It's hot. You know, they're hungry. They go sit down at lunch, and this guy had a nice big cheesesteak. Well, he goes up to get a drink so he can wash down this nice big cheesesteak, and my father-in-law eats about half of it while he's gone. <laughs> Needless to say, whether he was a subjectivist when he went to go get the soda, when he came back, he was an objectivist. He believed their objective moral values because he said, that's not right. My father-in-law said, excuse me? How can that not be right? It looked good to me. You can't claim that it's not right unless you're appealing to something outside of yourself to say that's not right because of, not because of me, but because of something else that we both know, right? You can't claim someone out to say someone else that's not right unless he should also know that that's not right. We have, we have a newborn, and um, my daughter got a little offended one time when she got close to him, and he bonked her in the face. Mommy hit me. I don't know if she expected us to pick him up and spank him. We had to explain, you know, he didn't know. He's, he doesn't know. I mean, first of all, he can't control his hands very well yet. He's shy of three weeks. You know, he's, he's still just trying to figure him out for himself. He hits himself in the face, you know. <laughs> Let's not get too hard on the kid. Um, but there's, there, you know, there, he's not wrong. He doesn't know what's right and what's wrong. If, if he did, we would have to then punish it. You know, if my daughter were to hit him back, we would punish her. She knows right and wrong. So we would say that we're, I'm appealing to an objectivity, to a morality that we both understand. Well, that's the way we have to live our lives, right? 
And we'll deal more with this again probably a little bit more next week. But the idea is that's what we're talking about with objective moral values. And what we're saying, what we're saying is if God doesn't exist, those objective morals, to be able to say universally that's right and that's wrong and you know it, isn't possible without God. Okay? Now, what I, I need to, we need to make a little caveat here. Okay? I am not saying in this argument, we are not saying that belief in God is necessary for morality. Okay? I'm not saying that one has to believe in God in order to be moral or to know morality. Okay? Here, here's a... Um, actually, I'm going to skip that quote. Um, but there are atheists who, will, who, who, who attest to morality. Okay? I'm not saying that you can't... That, God, that a belief in God is necessary for morality. And unfortunately, when you hear some of these atheists, that's what, that's what you'll hear. That they think that a lot of times what, what, what Christians are saying is that, well, you have to believe in my God in order to have any morality. And that's not what we're saying. That's not what this argument says either. Um, we're not also not saying that morality can't be known apart from God. Okay? I'm not saying that an atheist can't know what's right and what's wrong. I'm actually going to say the opposite. In the second premise of the argument, it says the opposite. It says everybody know, has a touch of what is right and what is truly wrong. I'm not saying an atheist can't live a good moral life. Uh, but my question is, where do you get that morality? Where do you base that morality on? I have a place to put it. Do you? I have a place to say this is how we both know it. Do you? And this is how I can cross over time and space and all those other things. That's the difference, okay? So I'm not saying that belief in God is necessary for morality, and I'm not saying that morality is known, um, is not known, cannot be known apart from God. Um, along with the atheists, we all know and agree that things are wrong and things are right. We would, we would point to the Bible in Romans chapter 1, right, that, that says we all know that. We know from creation. God, we have within us, as you had said, we have within us a moral law. That's what C.S. Lewis talks about, too. We all have within us this moral code. We are all made in the image of God. We have an innate sense of what is right and what is wrong. The question tonight is, where does that come from? And we're saying without God, you have no place to say that where that came from. Okay? I believe in a natural um, theology that, that says there is a natural revelation. There is a revelation built into people to say, yes, there's something more. There is something more because of what I see. There is something more because of how I act as well. Um, the question is not if morals exist or can we know that morals exist. The question is why do morals exist? It's in a, and uh, we're not going to deal with the... Uh, well, I'm going to skip over that. According to theism, though, what we say then is we say the foundation for all morality is in the nature of a transcendent, eternal, personal, and all good God. Okay? We would say in theism, I would, as a theist, I would say that the foundation for all morality, the reason I, that I'd say it's objective is because it, because it is uh, inextricably, inextricably tied to the nature of a transcendent, eternal, personal, all good God. That is my foundation uh, as a theist to where morality comes from. Uh, and the claim is that without such a foundation, without this foundation, without tying it to something outside, something transcendent, without tying it to God, this argument says the only thing you're left with is inside the bubble. 
right? As a theist, I'm saying the reason we all know it, the reason I can say this, because I point outside the bubble to God. You remember those, those circles we drew several weeks ago, a couple weeks ago when I did the cosmological armor? I had a little whiteboard here. If I had one here, I'd draw it right now. Um, but we had um, you have the idea of naturalism. Naturalism has inside the bubble is, <laughs> excuse me, um, the earth, time and space, people, animals, all that stuff is inside the bubble, and there's nothing outside. And as theists, we say that there's that bubble, but there's God outside who made everything. And that God exists outside, and he interacts with his people inside as well as a theist. And so that's what we're saying. We're saying, um, excuse me, that, that if you don't have that foundation, if you don't have God, without God, the only thing you're left with with morality is just social um, constructs. You have cultures. You have everything that has to be within that bubble. But when it's within that bubble, it's now within time and space, and it's just arbitrary. If morals and values do not have a solid anchor in something absolute, something transcendent from us, then all morality is afloat in a sea of arbitrariness. It's just arbitrary. It's based on people. It's based on cultures. It's based on nations. It's ba- You've got to find something inside. You can't appeal to anything outside. Without God, you have no way to, to have a solid, objective morality. That's what this argument says. Um, okay, now if we could... Now, now, we saw Christopher Hitchens there. We saw what he had to say about Christianity. We saw that he posited lots of moral claims against Christianity. Now, we don't have... On this next video I'm going to show you, Hitchens 2, we don't have what someone asked him, but he, I believe he repeats the question, and it has to do with where does your morality come from? How do you ground your morality? So here Hitchens is going to answer the question. Let's see how he answers it as an atheist about if he doesn't believe in a God, where does he pin his morality to? Where would your morals come from if there was no God? It's actually, it's a question that's posed in in, uh, Dostoevsky's wonderful novel, The Brothers Karamazov. One of the the brothers says, uh, Smerdyakov actually, the wicked one, says it. um, If God is dead, isn't everything permitted? Isn't everything permissible? Uh, Where would our ethics be if there was no superintending deity? This again seems to me a very profound insult to us in our very deepest nature and character. It is not the case, I submit to you, that we do not set about butchering and raping and thieving from each other right now uh, only because we're afraid of a divine punishment or because we're looking for a divine reward. It's an extraordinarily base and insulting thing to say to people. Um, On my mother's side, some of my ancestry is Jewish. I don't happen to believe the story of Moses in Egypt or the exile or the wandering in the Sinai and in fact now even Israeli archaeology has shown that there isn't a word of truth to that story or really any of the others but take it to be true am I expected to believe that my mother's ancestors got all the way to Mount Sinai quite a trek under the impression until they got there that rape murder perjury and theft were okay only to be told when they got to the foot of Mount Sinai bad news none of these things is kosher after all they're all forbidden. No, I don't think so. I think, I think we, can, we can actually have a better explanation in every sense. Superior, as well as better, that no one would have been able to get as far as Mount Sinai or in any other mountain in any other direction unless they had known that human solidarity demands that we look upon each other as brothers and sisters and that we forbid activities such as murder, a rape, a perjury, 
and theft, that this is innate in us. Of those to whom it is not innate, the sociopaths who don't understand the needs of anyone but themselves and the psychopaths who positively take pleasure in breaking these rules, well, all we can say is, um, they, according to one theory, they're also made in the image of God, which makes the image of God question rather problematic, does it not? Or that they can be explained by further and better research and have to be restrained and disciplined meanwhile. But in no sense here is religion a help where it claims to help most, which is to our morality, to uh, ethics. Okay. Clear as mud, right? Where does Hitchens say... Now, his question was, where do your moralities come from? This was the question posed to him. Where do your moralities come from if you do not believe in God? If, you, if there is no God, where... And that's, that's, that's our question exactly, isn't it? What was his answer? Can someone tell me what his answer was? Okay, innate, he said it was within human solidarity. It had to do with, with us um, being, having a human solidarity. Now, and, and what interested me was that was about this much of his answer. He, that was the question posed to him, and he hinted at it maybe. I mean, even you guys had kind of two different questions. I hear one person saying it's a social construct of sorts. It's with us with human solidarity, and someone else saying, well, it's innate within us. <clears throat> and what's interesting, too, is um, he says it's innate within us. Um, okay, so he's saying that we all have, we all have something within us. It's, I guess that's how he's positing it to be objective. We all just have this. And again, what's the question we need to ask? Why? Right. If I were to be able to respond to him, I would say, why is that the case? You say that it's, it's bound on the fact that to keep us all together. Why do you say that? I'm, ta I'm speaking of something that's objective here. Why would that... If you're saying that it has to do with a social construct, which is what you're breaking it down to, solidarity among the people, then if you're saying it's a solidarity among a social construct, you cannot condemn those Israelites for going in and wiping out everybody else, as you do. It was their solidarity as a nation to go in and wipe them out, according to what you say. That's where morality comes from. They're perfectly right in doing that. Are they not? And now you also say... <clears throat> excuse me, that it's innate within us. And that's where the subjective morality comes from. Oh, except I need to scratch, make, a, make, a, make some amends here. I need to say something about schizophrenics and, and psychopaths and, and, and crazy killers and things. It's not innate with them. What, why is that, Mr. Hitchens? If you're going to tell me it's innate, I'm sure if I probed, it would go deep enough to say it's some sort of evolutionary byproduct. And if that's the case, did evolution skip them? Are they specially created? Where did they miss the gene that says this? Or are they just somehow a, a mutation that shouldn't be allowed to exist and we should therefore kill them anyway, right? But if we're killing them anyway, isn't that going to go against our solidarity? M Mr. Hitchens never answers the question. And this is what, and you'll find this. If, if, you ever, if, you ever want, if you're ever tired and you want to get fired up, read his book. It, it, it fired me up. Um, I had to do a paper on it, and I didn't know where to start. I mean, he just, it's just, he, I call him the cheerleader of the atheists. There's very little meat to what he has to say, and he's just a cheerleader. He just wants to constantly bash Christians. Um, it's very, yes. So the book that you read had uh, someone, he said that, that he read a book about a well-known anthropologist who studied many different cultures and all of them had some sort of innate moral code that they, that they adhered to, something that, that, was, that was everybody adhered to. And that's, and that's important to see. Um, but what I wanted you to see from this is this is how he answers this question. He skirts it completely. 
and maybe touches on it very, very carefully uh, somewhere in there. No matter what, no, no matter what, even if I grant his social construct theory, and even if I, and we're, we're going to talk about this in a minute, even if I grant his innate theory, it's still arbitrary, isn't it? Like I said, well, why not this people group killing this people group? Why not this person who has it innate and this one doesn't? What makes it right and wrong? There's nothing objective to it. It's still subjective to either a people group or to an innate person. There's nothing objective to appeal it to. And again, I told you that, that, that the caricature that they'll play is that we believe that all morality is given to us by direct revelation from God. That's the only way we know morality. That's the only way that we can base anything on morality. Remember, he said some, that these Israelites believed before they got to Sinai that rape and all this stuff was wrong uh, and murder was right, which I guess he didn't read the beginning part of Genesis where Cain and Abel, that was established at the very beginning, but apparently he didn't read that part. But anyway, he, as you said, that, that it was all right until God specifically said it wasn't all right. Well, I don't know of a Christian apologist that would stand up there and say, I agree with that. That's not, how, that's not what we're saying here. And like I said, I'm not saying that neither he nor anyone else would not understand morality. We would say, but where does it come from? That's the question. <clears throat> Again, no matter what, no matter how you look at it, if without God, it becomes arbitrary, not objective. We can't appeal to it. And if there is no absolute or objective foundation for morality, then what, what really can be condemned? It may need some tweaking. It may need some, some way to work it out, whether you say that it's my truth and your truth or whether you say it's our truth as a group or whether you say it's my chemical imbalance um, from an evolutionary process. However you say it, there, there's got to be someone who say, but there's no way to, to, to seriously point to something objective and say, you're wrong because of this. It has to be you're wrong because of us. What, what really can be stopped if there is no objective morality? Rape, torture, murder, it can't be called evil and it can't be condemned, right? Uh, Richard Taylor says, um, the concept of moral obligation is unintelligible apart from the idea of God. Their words remain, but their meaning is gone. You may still be able to call something good and evil. Christopher Hitchens can, even though he doesn't have a basis to put it to even though he doesn't have an objective morality in which to put it to. Now, we're going to see one more video here, or another video here, um, of, Char of Charles Darwin. Um, Dawkins, another well-known atheist, a uh, good friend of Christopher Hitchens. Uh, he, he actually will have a little more meat to what he has to say. Uh, he's, uh, um, I believe, an evolutionary biologist, isn't he, at Cambridge? Um, and so he, he will try to posit some. But again, this same question is going to be asked to him. Okay, and we're going to hear his response now uh, as an atheist, an evolutionary biologist, what he has to say about the idea of if God does not exist, where do your moralities come from? Go ahead. See if we get anything. Oh, here so we go. Our next question comes from in the audience from Hamza Qureshi. Um, my question is for Professor Dawkins. Considering that uh, atheism cannot possibly have any sense of absolute morality, would it not then be an irrational leap of faith, which atheists themselves so harshly condemn, for an atheist to decide between right and wrong? <clears throat> absolute morality, the, the, the absolute morality that a religious person might profess would include what? Stoning people for adultery? Death for apostasy? Uh, punishment for breaking the Sabbath. These are all things which are religiously based absolute moralities. 
I don't think I want an absolute morality. I think I want a morality that, that is thought out, reasoned, argued, discussed, and... <laughs> ...based upon, I could almost say, intelligent design. Um, <laughs> can we not design our society which has the sort of morality, the sort of society that, that we want to live in? If you actually look at the the moralities that are accepted among modern people, among 21st century people. We don't believe in slavery anymore. We believe in equality of women. Um, we believe in, in being gentle. We believe in being kind to animals. These are all things which are entirely recent. They have very little basis in biblical or Quranic scripture. They are, th they are things that have developed over historical time through a consensus of reasoning, sober, discussion, argument, legal theory, political and moral philosophy. These do not come from religion to the extent that you can find the good bits in religious scriptures you have to cherry pick. You, you search your way through the Bible or the Quran and you find the occasional verse that is a, an acceptable profession of morality. And you say, look at that, that's religion. And you leave out all the horrible bits. <laughs> And you say, oh, we don't believe that anymore. We've grown out of it. Well, of course we've grown out of it. We've grown out of it because of secular moral philosophy and rational discussion. Tony Burke. Okay, so what does Professor Dawkins have to say to the question, just posed a little bit differently, about the, the ab with the absence of God, where does your morality come from? What did he have to say on that one? I'm sorry? We decide it. We get together, right? And and first, of course, the first <coughs> excuse me. The first thing he does is not answer the question directly, but again, have to throw back out that um, this is what your morality says. Again, that this is the, uh, the only morality, absolute morality you have is that which God has directly given you, which is immoral. Um, and again, what's the question we need to ask? Why, Professor Dawkins? Why do you say that that's immoral? I at least can appeal to a God to say that why things are immoral and not immoral. And what does he say then? He says, well, we need to, we as a group of people, I would much rather have when we as a group of people get to get together and think it through and say this is what we should do. And he got applauded for that. That's, Hitler probably said the same thing, didn't he? Here's a great idea, guys. This is what I'm thinking. Here's a good thought. But it's okay if Professor Dawkins says it. And what's interesting, too, <coughs> is he then goes and makes a big claim about saying, look how far we've progressed, didn't he? He says, this is how far we've come. Praise whatever I can praise to say this is how far we've come. But the problem is, you're saying, here on this timeline, this was bad. Up here on the timeline, this is good. Where are you pointing that moral arrow to? If you're saying people get together to decide morality, you, all you can say is that it's a different um, consensus of morality from that time frame to this time. You can't call that one evil unless you point to something outside of time and space. Do you see that? You can't say they did it wrong, we did it right, unless you point to something that we both understand as right. He's claiming an objective morality outside of time and space to make his claim that there is no morality outside of time and space. Yes. Oh, and, it, and you know what? We may, not have to, we may have time to take a look at it uh, next week, but there is a video where he actually scientifically tries to show you the altruism of apes. 
and shows you how then how we got this altruistic gene from apes. Um, and it's pretty interesting. Yeah, and we're actually going to touch on that, too. So it's very interesting how, they, how, how that actually works. And that's why they have to come up with, like I said, he has to come up with an altruistic gene. Somehow, uh, being self-sacrificial and altruistic has to some... If, and if he's going to make it work, it has to somehow be beneficial for our species. And, you know, it's a kind of little bit of worming and squirming to try to get it to somehow be that way. And it's very interesting. But... <clears throat> for the sake of time, because I'd love to finish this tonight, so we have time for the next one. I don't want to push it though if we don't, if we if we um, can't do it. Uh, Kai Nielsen, he's an atheistic philosopher. He says this: reason. Now, now again, this is what Dawkins said. Another atheist said, "This is what we need to go on." I'd rather have one based on reason, us sitting down and deciding. This is what he says. Kai Nielsen says about reason. Reason. Reason doesn't decide here. The picture I have painted for you is not a pleasant one. Reflection on it depresses me. Pure practical reason, even with a good knowledge of the facts, will not take you to morality. So he's saying, reason can't get you to morality. It just doesn't. Actually, I would say that we've seen the failure of that. And we'll talk a bit about that um, some more too. Um, It actually, without the objective framework of God, it sounds a lot like what we hear in the Bible from Judges, doesn't it? The, the overarching tone that keeps getting thrown out in, in Judges is, is what? In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did as was right in his own eyes. Who was supposed to be the king of Israel? They wanted Saul, but who was really supposed to be their king? God, right? God was supposed to be their king and, and their protector and their, their covenant lord. Um, and so instead of finding the morality from him, they found, it, they found it in their own eyes. And the Bible during the Judges is, is replete with what happens uh, when man decides and comes together in consensus for their own morality. Now, some naturalistic philosophers, the naturalistic meaning those who believe that materialism is all there is, believe that all that is is what's here, there is no God. Um, some naturalistic philosophers see the problem here, okay? They're, and they fear the moral anarchy that comes if this premise is true. If, the, if it, it, They see that, you know what? If God does not exist, we don't have, you know, if if God does not exist, then objective moralities do not exist. We're sunk. They they, they admit, yeah, that will cause moral anarchy. There will be, it'll be arbitrary. It'll be everyone does what he wants, whether it's by a society or a person. So they say, we got to come up with an objectivity, an objective morality apart from God. We have to have something that reaches everybody over time. We have to find out some way to do that. It reaches everybody on every culture throughout time and space, but not have it be a personal God. We have to do that. And so this is, these are some alternate foundations that some naturalistic philosophers have come up with. Okay, the first one is, well, it's the idea of human flourishing. Okay, it's the, it's, it is the evolutionary idea. It's the idea of, well... There is an altruistic gene within us. There is, there is something about us that when we learn to work together, when we learn not to, hey, you don't steal from me, I won't steal from you, the community will get better, our community will survive, the other ones who are stabbing each other in the back die off in the evolutionary process, so we inherit this altruistic gene to be self-sacrificial, right? That's how they say it. The objectivity of morality is based within humanity itself. Ah, we got it, because we have to figure it out for humans... Right, And so we're all humans from across time and space. We're all humans in these different cultures. So if we can say it's based within humanity, we've got it figured out. No God needed. 
no God necessary, right? The problem becomes, though, they're saying that it's coming from an evolutionary process. Here's what Michael Moose has to say. The position of the modern evolutionist is that humans have an awareness of morality because such an awareness is of biological worth somehow. Morality is a biological adaptation no less than our hands and our feet and our teeth. Considered as a rationality, a rationally justifiable set of claims about an objective something, ethics is illusory. I appreciate that when somebody says, love thy neighbor as thyself, they think they are referring above and beyond themselves. Nevertheless, such reference is truly without foundation. Morality is just an aid to survival and reproduction, and any deeper meaning is illusory. There's nothing outside. It has to benefit us, Michael Roos says. It benefits humanity. It's all just for, as evolutionary process goes, to propagate the species. It's all about biology. It has nothing to do with anything above and beyond, out there, um, above beyond ourselves or anything like that. The problem becomes, though, there's a problem with this. The first problem is, who said homo sapiens are the end-all, be-all? Why should we be the only ones with this morality? If, if, you know, if it came through evolution, why are we the only ones without this? Now, I grant, again, some would say you see aspects of this within the apes, so you see a primitive version of this. But still, they're saying that the, the homo sapiens ha- are the only ones to which this claim um, applies about this, the only one that, that we hold accountable for, isn't that sort of, as William Lane Craig calls it, speciesism? Isn't that speciesism to say homo sapiens are the only ones that get this, are the only ones to which this applies if it is coming straight through the biological line? And, and here's another one. If humans determine their, their own morality, I, I misprint there, through biological evolution, what obligation do we have to be moral at all? Okay, remember, uh, if you think about it, we have, uh, if, uh, the, the statement really says that if, if without God, if, if God does not exist, no objective morals, values, okay, whether something is right and wrong, or duties, the fact that we should do that right and wrong, exist. Okay? So he's saying, look, even if, even if you can come up with a thing saying, yes, this is right and this is wrong, what reason do I really have to want to do that? What, what obligation do I have? I mean, I guess if I really want to propagate the species, if I'm really interested in evolution, I guess I could, but I have no real moral obligation to do it. What is the basis for objective moral duties? If we are but animals, then what reason is there to call certain actions humans do objectively wrong? If we're nothing more, if it's nothing more than our, if if morality is nothing, is, is only, let me say this again. If morality is relegated to the same degree as our hands and feet, because they are all products of evolution, we are no more than animals, what reason do we of humans have to call something objectively true, but not expected of other animals? Shouldn't I also... Um, let me, let me read a, um, F, uh, Richard Taylor. Let me read his, his quote here. Such actions, uh, though injurious to their victims... Um, are no more, and speaking of actions of, um, of humans against each other, are no more uh, unjust or immoral than they would be if they were done by one animal or another. A hawk that seizes a fish from the sea kills it, but it doesn't murder it. And another hawk that seizes a fish from the talons of a first takes it, but it doesn't steal it. For none of these things are forbidden, and exactly the same um, considerations apply to the people we are imagining. What he's saying is, look, in the animal world, you see a lion kill, you know, you watch Discovery Channel, you see an animal, you see this big at, uh, lion take down a zebra and, and rip it to shreds and you're like wow it really killed that thing you're not sitting there crying screaming murderer murderer you know <clears throat> someone find simba there and get him and throw him in jail you know we should keep him in jail we don't do that why because it's different 
we would say we have an objective morality that, that is claimed upon humans. It's not the same with animals. But why not if it's all part of, of, of objective morality? If it, comes, I mean, if it comes through the biological line, if it comes through biology and it's no more biological than our hands and feet, part of biology than our hands and feet, we should be able to hold animals um, responsible for that as well. And it also becomes a problem, too, because <clears throat> there are certain things that you would see that, wait a minute, it has been seen in the animal kingdom that rape propagates a species. Forcible sex from one animal to another, from a male animal to five or six different female animals, propagates his species pretty well. Better than if he self-sacrifices himself and says, no, no, you may marry that lioness, that's fine. No, that's not what we see from, from biology. So wouldn't it, according to their theory, wouldn't it make more sense for us to go around and say, hey, rape is totally fine because it would help propagate our species. You know, if we're, if we're white Americans and we want to propagate white America because that's, you know, more evolutionary or, 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 or African Americans or, or Asians or whatever, if we want to propagate that, that element of our species, shouldn't we therefore just be able to rape anybody? Well, we would say, oh, that's, that's horrible, absolutely not. Well, why is it different than the animal kingdom if you're saying there's no difference and it came from the animal kingdom? You see the problem? Um, I'm going to take a look at one more video here. Now, this is, this is a, a debate here with uh, Dinesh D'Souza, who is now actually the president of King's College. Um, he used to work, uh, I believe, as a, as a, um, a speechwriter, if I'm not mistaken. Okay, um, um, a columnist um, and um, in the White House or uh, associated with the government somehow. Anyway, and he's, he's, he's very sharp, and I, and I really like Dinesh D'Souza, um, and he's speaking with uh, Peter Singer, who is an ethicist, a professor of ethics at Princeton University. Now, I've seen some things with him before. Maybe we'll see him again, uh, Peter Singer, um, who will say that, you know, he, will, he, he takes his beliefs, you know, logically to their conclusion for the most part. Um, and he will say, you know, humans are on the same level as animals, and it's sometimes better. Uh, a, a, a healthy pig has more, more of a value than a handicapped child, and so therefore we should keep one and get rid of the other. Simple as that. Because it, this one gives to society meat and things, and the, and the child just saps from society. I mean, he's at least logical and coherent with his beliefs. I'll give him that much. Wrong, but he's at least coherent. But this is here's a here's a debate. Now I want you to be able to see someone who isn't who is an atheist and speaking again to morality, uh, the same type thing. If God does not exist, and I want to hear, you, I want to see you to be able to see now someone who believes the theist point of view, be able to respond finally to one of these guys. So if we could see that clip, then. Doctor Singer, what is the source? What is the source of morality? Obviously, if it, if it isn't God. Uh, and then uh, the follow-up, what is the source of your morality? Uh, so why don't we start there, Dr. Singer. What, what is the source of morality if it isn't God? And then, yes, what is the source of your okay. morality? As I said, this is a really large topic. I give uh, courses at Princeton on, on, on this topic. Uh, We're looking for like a cheesy, handy right. sound bite. So, 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 so. <laughs> a sound bite answer to me is the idea of putting yourself in the position of others, of asking how would you like it if that were done to you. Now I know that some of you are going to say, aha, now you're taking a religious idea, the golden rule, and putting it uh, as the basis of morality. But in fact, this idea is not specific to either Christianity or Judaism, where the golden rule comes from. You can find it in secular traditions as well. So you find it in the Stoics, the Roman philosophers. 
You find it also, interestingly, in Confucius. And um, that reminds me that, that Dinesh, when talking about secular societies, skipped very rapidly over Asia, a rather large area, with a lot of rich cultural traditions, as he well knows. And Confucianism and Buddhism are both traditions that do not believe in God. There is no God in either Confucian views or, or Buddhist views as, you know, as a requirement of, of belief. And yet they both come up with ethical systems and they both in different ways have this idea of putting yourself in the place of the other. And to me that's the core idea of ethics that enables you to then work out it becomes very complicated, of course, what you want to do. Um, do, you have, do you have anything that you'd like to add to Yeah. I think that we're making a little bit of a confusion, a confusion, confusion, uh, confusion here. The argument that I'm making is not that the Christian God infuses morality into Christians and leaves everybody else without it. Rather, what I'm saying is that the Darwinian account of morality as you say, it counts for facts. It does not account for morality. Morality comes from someplace else. But where else can it come from? If we are evolved primates in the universe, where does the idea of the ought, the should, the must, where does that come from? That was the question. You didn't answer it. Now, my point is, in the Christian answer, we are material beings in a material world, but God, we might say, breathes a soul into the material primate and this soul is a divine whisper and it is in all human beings. So if you say, I find it in the Confucian, I find it in India, I find it in the Buddhist, I, even I the atheist have it, you're not refuting me, you're confirming what I'm saying. I'm not, we're not talking here about the specific legacy of Christianity. I agree, there is a specific legacy of Christianity and certain aspects of our ethical tradition uh, do come out of it. So, for example, the movement to abolish slavery existed only in Western culture because it comes out of a specifically Christian tradition. But on the other hand, the golden rule is universal because God has implanted it universally, including in atheists like you. Ah, finally a video that's a little more satisfying, right? Finally get to see someone ask the question we've been wanting to ask, right? And again, you saw the same type thing, didn't you? Again, it was, a, it was in the caricature that, that what was being asked um, or being asserted by Mr. D'Souza was that the belief in God is necessary for one to understand morality. And that's not what the question even asked. Where does your morality come from, Mr. I don't believe in God? And he didn't really answer the question. And finally, someone pulled him out on the carpet and said, you missed it. What are you, you have not answered this question yet because you can't. They know the second they say it's bound inside here, inside time and space, they're stuck with an arbitrary and they can't use moral language outside of their own culture time right now. And that's the problem. Now, I want to I skip a little bit down because I want to hit the, uh, the next area here. The next possible area for a foundation 
Um, all right, atheists will say, well, it's, it's found within man because we're evolved from animals and there's an altruistic gene throughout us and this is the way it works, um, you know, and, and it's just a, a morality thing that's, that's inherent within us because of, of us being um, from the animal kingdom. And just, the, I guess, the morality gene just moved its way up the line and that's here we are. And uh, we saw that that doesn't work. That still just it completely leaves out. Um, th- there's no way to, to say that some things are right and some things are wrong, at least over time and space. It's, it's socially constructed. Each social group will be able to make its own claims. Um, but there's another foundation which some atheist philosophers will try to stand on to make moral claims. And this is what they say. Well, it's called atheistic moral realism. Okay? And basically what it says... Actually, let me read a quote to you. Um, William Lane Craig was in a debate with... Um, Walter Sinnott Armstrong. And this is, this is the quote from when he was debating. And I guess uh, uh, in, the, in the debate, this, this question kind of along the lines of moral uh, idea, where does your moral foundations come from, was posited. And, and this is, was uh, Walter Sinnott Armstrong, the atheist's response to William Lane Craig. He, he says, uh, Craig next asks, if God did not forbid rape, what makes rape immoral objectively? This question is supposed to be hard for the atheist to answer because Craig seems to assume that on the atheistic view, what makes rape wrong is some cost to the, rape or, to the rapist or to society. These views are inadequate because rape would still be immoral even if the rapist got away with it and even if society was not harmed. But atheists can give a better answer. What makes rape immoral is that rape harms the victim in terrible ways. The victim feels pain, loses freedom, is subordinated, and so on. These harms are not justified by any benefits to anyone. Well, still Craig may ask, what's immoral about causing serious harms to other people without justification? Which would be the claim if you are, you know, if you're an atheist, what's, what's the harm in that? Since uh, Walter Sinnott uh, Armstrong continues, but now it seems to the natural to answer, it simply is, objectively. Don't you agree? And that's where he ends it. He says, well, well I, okay, Craig may come back and say, say yeah, okay, you, even, if it, even if it is injurious to, 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 um, to, if it is injurious, what's so wrong about that? If it may be propagating the species, what's so wrong about it? And he says, well, it just is. Don't you get it? That's, that's what atheistic moral realism is. <coughs> Excuse me. It's difficult to, to ponder because it doesn't quite make sense. Okay, and here's what it says. It says that these values that we talk about, love, justice, mercy, compassion, all these values that we talk about, they just are. Okay, just leave it at that. They just, their time, they're out there. They're there. It's not God. They're just there. And that's why we, they're objective. And that's why we can appeal to them. The problem is, what does that even mean? That they just are. How can you have, how can love just be? That's an abstract thought. How can mercy just be? It has to interact with, it has to be a personal um, interaction. You can't have mercy without someone to be merciful towards. It needs to be a personal thing. It's not an abstraction. It has to be connected with a being. Um, how do these values necessarily exist? They can't. They can only be found with, by, with people and in relationships. There's only way you can have love, mercy, justice. They, they don't just exist in a room vacant. But that's what this theory says. They do. That there, it's, it's obje- it simply exists. Now even, now, even if I posit that that's possible, even if they simply existed, what obligation do I have to do them? Okay, so love floats around up there. Mercy floats up around. But you know what? So does hate and greed. Why shouldn't I do hate and greed instead of love and mercy? What makes love and mercy the thing I should do rather than hate and greed? If they're all, they all have to be abstract then, according to their view, both good and bad, or what we would call good and bad. Right? 
Even if these values did simply exist, they are abstract. And, and, and how would the natural process, evolutionary process, mesh together with this abstract philosophical process? Like that, they, that, that's, that's an odd thing to, to say, two things like that. The natural world and an abstract world perfectly mesh together to create in just homo sapiens this morality. That doesn't, that, you, you're still begging a question there. How does that happen? And even if these values did exist, why do they only apply to humans then and not to the material world? Okay? If they simply exist, shouldn't all the material world be obliged, however they're obliged to them? If they just exist and somehow they meshed with us. This, this, this idea is just trying to say that there is, there is this objective morality, but we're just not going to call them God. Okay, that, that's, that's what this comes to. It, it, other than that, it doesn't make any sense. Now, I want to finish up here, and you may have a couple minutes for any questions or anything like that. But the conclusion is, oh, the conclusion of this whole first premise, if God does not exist, then objective morals and duties do not exist. Okay? In the absence of any moral framework, objective moral framework, Grounded in the person and nature of God, all morality becomes subjective or arbitrary. I don't care how you swing it. It's just, that's how it works. I have not heard an atheist yet be able to give a good answer for this. And you've seen them skirt around the issue. If you don't ground it in a personal, um, eternal, loving, all good God, you have nowhere else to put it. Or if you do, you at least have to admit that it's all arbitrary and we can do whatever we want. Every attempt to ground morality apart from God only leaves moral values that are loosely tied to subject and subject to time and space. If you can't tie them to outside of time and space to God, it's got to be time tied somewhere inside time and space and then it's bound by it. So it can change by time and space. And if you think that this is all just abstract thought, let's just let's take a little walk down history lane. What, what, we talked about the Holocaust, didn't we? And, I, and this uh, last year, I got to go to the Holocaust Museum. I and mean, that's, I, talk about eye-opening. That, that's, that's amazing. I mean, they have videos, <coughs> excuse me, that are so graphic as to what they would do to the Jews that they don't let, let them anywhere near eye level for children. They have to hide them. But they want you to see what really went on there. They, they, they showed you the, the um, experiments they would do to little children and how they would take innocent Jewish and gypsy children and mutilate them just to see what would happen. And they have videos of these experimentations. What happens so that they could help the better the German war and help the, the German uh, um, um, pilots. What happens if you deprive this child of oxygen for so long? How long can the child hold his breath underwater to be able to know how we can better help? If we infuse him with this, can we help our, our men do better? How they would just line them up stark naked along a big ditch and just shoot them all one by one. Hundreds and hundreds. How they would pump out millions of people through these ovens. They said you could smell the stench. How do you get to that low of an ethical society? Well, according to Hitchens, it's all because of Christianity. And he ties it to things Luther, Martin Luther has said. He says it's, it's 400 years of anti-Semitism within the church. Well, I beg to differ. The church is not without its moral failures. I will grant that. We have been horrific in our moral failures, but we have also been triumphant in our moral standing as well. But the impetus, the major impetus for what happened in the Holocaust had less to do with God and had more to do with the absence of God. Hitler 
personally delivered the writings of Friedrich Nietzsche to, um, to Stalin. What did Friedrich Nietzsche say? God is dead. There is no God. And what I want to say before we even start talking about the Holocaust is the atheist has nothing to say about it. I'm the, the theist is the only one who can stand up here and say it was wrong. Because I can point outside of time and space and say, look, that says it's wrong. They can only stand within time and space and say, well, I guess their social construct didn't work. You know, or I guess you know, that abstract thought of, of love didn't work. Uh, Nietzsche said, God is dead. This is what else Nietzsche said. What is good? All that heightens the feeling of power in man, the will to power, power itself. What is bad? All that is born of weakness. What is happiness? The feeling that power is growing, that resistance is overcome. When you strip away the moral foundation of God, something else has to, you have to tie good and bad to something else. Nietzsche tied it to power and to weakness, and Hitler bought it. And then when you say there is no God outside time and space, but we're all a product of chance and an evolutionary byproduct um, of, of time and chance, then you look around and say, we're better, they're not, because we're higher and they're not. We're a people who get to make up our own morality. These people are pushing their way in. And when I was at the Holocaust Museum, they had a whole section devoted, a, a, a limited section, um, um, it's only there for a limited time, about the propaganda used by the Nazis to teach the the, the the, um, the, the German people why their race was superior and it was amazing when God is dead and there's nothing to tie it to outside of time and space you have to stay within time and space and you have to stay within your own people and they said these are lower we are higher therefore we are justified in our power to get rid of these people and if you think that that's insane look at the people who bought into it and how many Jews, millions, six million plus Jews were killed because of the fact that someone said, God is dead, I've loosed us from that moral oaring, now we can do whatever we want. And I say we do what's powerful. When you lose society from objective moral foundations, that which determines the evil across time and space, you free it to commit any sort of evil you want. You just have to agree on it. That's all Atheism, when you take away God as the objective morality, that's all you're left with. According to the atheistic understanding, this is okay. Hitler made his own ethic. And this was said by some of his top officials at the Nuremberg trials. Hitler made his own ethic. We were just following his orders because we believed him. Viktor Frankl was someone who had been uh, on the receiving end of this lack of morality. He was an inmate at Auschwitz. But he doesn't blame God for the Holocaust. This is, this is what he said in his book, uh, The Doctor and the Soul. If we present a man with a concept of man which is not true, we may well corrupt him. When we present man as an auto, auto, automaton of reflexes, as a mind machine, as a bundle of instincts, as a pawn of drives and reactions, as a mere product of instinct, heredity, and environment, we feed the nihilism to which modern man is, in any case, prone. I became acquainted with the last stage of that corruption in my second concentration camp, Auschwitz. The gas chambers of Auschwitz were the ultimate consequence of the theory that man is nothing but the product of hereditary, uh, heredity and environment, or as the Nazi liked to say, of blood and soil. 
I am absolutely convinced that the gas chambers of Auschwitz, Treblinka, and Majdanek were ultimately prepared, not in some ministry or other, or, other, or other in Berlin, but rather at the desks and in the lecture halls of nihilistic scientists and philosophers. So he's saying it's not, it wasn't in the war rooms that, the, that this came about. It started in the universities and those people that said, God is dead. There's no morality out there. We'll make it up ourselves. When you loose yourself from the objective morality of God, you have nothing left to stand on. And all, as Hitchens admitted, becomes permissible. Without God, objective morals, values, and duties do not exist. We all have felt it. We all have seen it. We all have heard about it. History tells of it, but still some deny it. This is a powerful argument for the existence of God. That's the first part of the argument. Next week, we will pick up the second part of the argument, which says objective moral values and duties do exist. And if we can claim the truth to both of those premises, the obvious conclusion becomes God does exist. 